Good afternoon, and thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online Master of Arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This afternoon, Dr. John Tierney will be joining the podcast to discuss Afghanistan and a recent article that he wrote for the IWP website entitled Afghanistan in Perspective. Dr. Tierney is a professor emeritus at the Institute of World Politics and teaches history of American foreign policy, history of international relations, peace, strategy, and conflict resolution, and U.S. foreign policy current and future challenges. Dr. Tierney is a former special assistant and foreign affairs officer for the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. He formerly participated in various national security negotiations for, U for the U.S. government. He was executive director of the Congressional Caucus on National Defense and the National Security Research Group for the U.S. House of Representatives. He is a former chairman of the politics department at Catholic University and former professor of international relations at the University of Virginia and the John Hopkins University. He's the author of Chasing Ghosts and the Politics of Peace. Dr. Tierney, welcome and thank you for joining the IWP podcast this afternoon. Thank you, Hannah. I'm very happy to do so and I'm glad to represent IWP. The first question that I have for you is, after nearly 20 years of U.S. forces being in Afghanistan, why do you think U.S. policy failed there so drastically? Why it failed? Yes. Well, um, I have never been to Afghanistan, and I am uh, not a, a military expert per se. Uh, however, I have covered uh, a lot of uh, history of American foreign policy, including a book on the subject of uh, America in unconventional warfare situations historically before Afghanistan called Chasing Ghosts. So although I'm not a main participant, I view it from a historical perspective. And I have read quite a bit of the explanations that have been circulated on the media since August 16th, and I wrote that article on August 16th, and they can be divided up into two categories, I believe. The first category would be tactical, what we did wrong and why we got out as a defeated uh, uh, superpower after 20 years uh, and gave the country back to the Taliban. These are tactical, what we did wrong on the ground. Now, the second, and I, I have no dispute with them, and I'll go over them very quickly, shortly. But as a historian, I believe that in perspective, the main problem is deeper than what we did or did not do. It has to do with us and them, what they are and what we are. And that's what I think is the actual fundamental difference between the two. Just take a look at the historical background of America since the early 20th century. We have the two major wars that were the greatest wars in the history of the globe, called World War One and World War Two, in which the United States emerged uh, overwhelmingly successful. 
and they represented what is called superpower status. And then we defeated mainly without warfare, political warfare, the Soviet Union and global communism by 1991, when we became a superpower. We are identified with those wars, the 20th century wars. Now, the second part of it is what we identified with both during the Cold War and since. And those are the Vietnam Wars, the war, the war in Vietnam, and Afghanistan. You have two sets of America in world politics, one in which we defeated the greatest military powers on earth, Germany and Japan, Germany twice. And, and the second one, we had to leave after 20, 25 years in both cases, leave without achieving the main objective that we came there for against backwater countries located in remote and jungle atmospheres in which we used our air power and military power to no avail. So you basically have two countries. And so the second thing, as opposed to the first one, the tactical one is strategic culture. What we think of war, how we behave in war, certainly there has to be some explanation as to why a country can defeat Germany twice, the Soviet Union and the Japanese Imperial Army, the greatest totalitarian organized militaries in, the, in world history, and yet go down to the feet against two rural insurgencies or uh, in occupation. Now, let's take the first one uh, as the explanation as to why the U.S. failed alone in Afghanistan. And I call these tactical judgments because they are an explanation of what we did wrong. And I think I'll go over them very, very quickly because they are uh, tactical and uh and not strategic or in historical perspective. The first one was we had, a, according to the the generals, both those who served in the in Afghanistan and pundits on the air and on TV and in in the press. Uh, there's several of them, at least seven of them. First of all, we had a lack of clear strategy. Are we in there to build up Afghanistan as a democracy or to end terrorism and to uh, destroy uh, the uh, idea of uh, the uh, al-Qaeda using Afghanistan, Afghanistan as a basis for uh, attacks of 9-11? That is, is the military a destructive force or is it a constructive force? Is it build up nations or is it supposed to uh, defeat armies? The second one is that we had a very poor timetable. Uh, there was always a sense of perpetual imminent departure. We didn't know exactly what would be the duration of our occupation of the country. So it was always this week, that week, this month, this year, and so forth. It didn't have any clear strategy. It didn't have any clear timetable. It had, number three, unsustainable projects. The total amount of money spent was $2 trillion approximately. That's as much as we spent in dollar terms alone, minus inflation, mind you, during the entire course of World War II. And that is the exact amount which President Biden is now asking for domestic infrastructure. $2 billion and all these projects were uh, corrupted by overlap and they destroyed themselves after a period of time. 
billions of dollars were spent on hospitals and on the uh, Afghanistan Air Force, which was a complete waste of time. So our projects were really very poorly constructed and uh, they, they were not uh, projected properly. Number four, they called harmful hiring practices, practices unqualified and poorly trained personnel, Recy recycling to such an extent that the term in Afghanistan was used as annual lobotomies. That is people who came and went on an annual basis and they they were not poorly they were poorly trained and unqualified for the general projects that we constructed in the country. Uh, the fifth one is called bad security. We defeated the Taliban early on in the war, but we never got rid of them. Number six is the lack of understanding of Afghanistan, which I think is probably number one, and also has to do with the second uh, general category I'm going to address. That is strategic culture, we had no understanding of them any more than we did with the Vietnamese background, history, or culture. And that is generally, or almost universally, the case when like a Western power goes into a, a, another country, either in Asia, Africa, Latin America, or whatever. They have to undergo a complete learning process to understand the culture. We never really accomplished that. The lack of understanding of who we who we are with uh, uh, introduced a tremendous amount of patronage inside the country, corruption, and local rather than local allegiance rather than allegiance to the occupation country, which was the United States. Uh, we number seven uh the generals uh have generally speak spoken on the issue of that we even though we uh, had a counterinsurgency history especially with vietnam and i can endorse this answer uh deeply with my research on the book i did that was published in 2006 we we are easily easily forgetting the lessons either learned or not learned uh, about counterinsurgency. Uh, uh, we learned this deeply in Vietnam and we had to uh, try to relearn it again in Afghanistan and of course failed. We basically forgot everything we ever knew. I, again, I would emphasize that it's because of uh, the lack of uh, the, the 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 lack of understanding is is because of the differences in political culture, and finally, uh, just like in other areas of counterinsurgency, the the rebels or the Taliban, especially in Afghanistan, were able to take advantage of a of a uh, a sanctuary in Pakistan. Uh, and they would slip back and forth between the border uh, in Pakistan and were able to make use of, a, of the sanctuary. Now, those are some of the tactical, um, uh, or the, a couple of the others were over overconfidence uh, in our ability to do what seemed to be a very small job. And I'm going to do some quotations uh, throughout this uh, conversation uh, that will uh, try to emphasize uh, the points that I'm going to be making. Um, 
Let me just quote to you a statement that was made by the President of the United States, George W. Bush, regarding our activities in Afghanistan. Quote, we have clearly moved from major combat activity to a period of stability and stabilization. The bulk of the country today is permissive. It is completely secure. President of the United States, George W. Bush, 2003. Okay, and finally, the tactical uh, explanations of our failure is that we always were reluctant to leave the country because of domestic politics, because of departure from Afghanistan, even in an early, especially in an early stage, would appear that we are giving up on terror, that if we evacuate Afghanistan, this just, just opens the door to domestic terror. And the image of 9-11 is, is so, uh, so vivid and so uh, uh, real uh, is that any kind of a withdrawal, especially in the early stages, would be, conceded, would be seen as a concession to terrorism as, and as national uh, weakness. So, Hannah, I, I, I do realize I've talked quite a bit, uh, but I have uh, at least covered the, the, the front uh, in terms of what we uh, did wrong. And that's a long list. And I really am not in a position to, qual to quarrel with any of it. But I believe at the heart of it is basically a difference in the backgrounds, the histories, the cultures of the two societies. And so if you have, do you have any, any comments or any questions uh, thus far on this, what I call the tactical explanations? Um, I don't think so, but I think that's a kind of a good segue into our second question, um, which you kind of brought to my attention when we were discussing this episode is, what is strategic culture? And kind of, could you discuss what factor it played in Afghanistan? Okay, this is what I think is at the root cause. I think the idea of the differences in location, the differences in history, the differences in language and religion and everything else that, that controls uh, the word culture is at bottom a, uh, an explanation that pervades America and its role in the other or outside world. Uh, and I tried to point this out uh, in the uh, book that I mentioned already, but I, I, I will do some quotations to emphasize uh, the point that uh, the idea is not just what we did in Afghanistan is what we did in Vietnam, which I consider to be not necessarily identical, but close to it, very, very similar. And what we did in history, not only what we did with counterinsurgency in the Philippines and in Nicaragua, which was my PhD thesis, but what we did in counterinsurgency throughout the 19th century, and basically what we did 
when we won the greatest wars in history, in the First and the Second World Wars, and especially in the Civil War. Basically, we are the, the ancestors of Ulysses Grant. And Ulysses Grant, who rescued the Civil War for the Lincoln administration in the last year of the war in 1864, is basically the epitome of what America represents in warfare. And it certainly had very little to do with either Vietnam or uh, Afghanistan. Uh, it basically comes down to two different concepts of military war. And if you would permit me, I would like to read something from a book that was published in 1988. I think it was probably either the first or the second in terms of impact about explaining Vietnam during the entire period of the Vietnam War. Now, many of, your, <clears throat> of our listeners are not going to remember the Vietnam War, and you probably don't as well. I've, I was never in Vietnam either, but I do remember the situation because I, I grew up within it, but I was just 10 years ahead of the draft. But the book I'm referring to was published in 1987 by a man, a New York Times correspondent named Neil Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N, who just passed away this past year. And it's called A Bright Shining Lie. And in my opinion, it is either the best, and certainly it, it won a Pulitzer Prize, uh, by the way, and it probably stands out as much as David Halberstam's book, which was a few years earlier, uh, called The Best and the Brightest. Uh, and it basically explains from the perspective of the Vietnam War in 1987, he spent 10 years working on this book. And I would like to quote uh, the passage uh, from him, which explains, I think the term uh, strategic culture. And if you would permit me, let me just uh, quote uh, his explanation. Uh, of this phenomenon as he was writing in 1988 about the Vietnamese. Quote, the wars with the big powers to the north, especially China, he's referring to Vietnam, which was invaded many times like Afghanistan throughout its history, also led the Vietnamese to elaborate a particular idea as the central concept of their military thought. The concept is that an ostensibly weaker force, properly handled, can defeat a stronger one. This idea is hardly unique to universal military thought, as I can testify, frankly. But in Vietnamese doctrine, it became the main arc, A-R-C-H. Vietnamese military training and teaching emphasized historically that to bring this concept to fruition, the more powerful enemy had to be worn down by protracted warfare. I repeat, protract, protracted is the adjective. The Vietnamese forces had to employ hit and run tactics, delaying actions, and the ravishes of ambush and harassment by guerrilla bands the enemy had to be lured into wasting his energy in the rainforests and mountains 
and other formidable terrain of the country, while the Vietnamese used the same terrain as shelter in which to build their strength. <clears throat> Finally, when the enemy was sufficiently drained and confused, he was to be finished off by sudden shock offensives, delivered with maximal, flexible, I mean, flexible maneuver and maximum surprise and deception. Now, Hannah, he was writing about the Vietnam War in the 1980s. I think if you substitute Afghanistan for Vietnam, you got precisely what has happened over the years in Afghanistan, especially in August, just two months ago. Exactly, if not exactly, it, it is a certain approximation. And what is the difference between the two? Why, why uh, uh, does, does the United States, uh, why did it fail so, so badly uh, in Vietnam and, and so badly in Afghanistan? It is because of the strategic culture that grew up in America, principally since the Civil War. And if I can, again, I want to quote from another book, which is, again, a very landmark volume written uh, back in the 1960s by a university professor named Russell F. Wigley, W-E-I-G-L-E-Y. It's called The American Way of War, A History of United States Military Strategy and Policy. And I'm going to begin with his description at the very beginning of the book. Uh, and if you, if you will, would you bear in mind, please, and would the audience bear in mind what I just wrote about Neil Sheehan's description of the Vietnam War? This is his description, the other author, Russell Wigley, of how America viewed warfare. It's exactly, almost the opposite, really, of what I just read regarding Vietnam and the Taliban. Quote, to quote Russell Wigley in his introduction, in the Indian Wars, the Civil War, and then climatically in World War II, American strategists sought in actuality the object that Clausewitz, the famous German author of warfare, saw as the ideal type of war, of war in the abstract. Quote, the destruction of the enemy's armed forces amongst all the objects which can be pursued in war appears always as the one that, which overrules all others. The destruction of the enemy's military force is the leading principle of war. And for the whole chapter of positive action, the direct way to the object, Clausewitz, who is the principal theoretician of war even to this day, and this is what Russell Wigley has concluded applying Clausewitz to, to the United States. Quote, in the history of American strategy, the direction taken by the American conception of war made most American strategists through most of the time span of American history, strategists of annihilation. At the beginning, 
when American military resources were still slight, slight, S-L-I-G-H-T, America made a promising beginning in the nurture of strategists of attrition. Here's the conclusion. But the wealth of the country and its adoption of unlimited aims in war cut that development short until the strategy of annihilation became characteristically the American way of war. And what does that mean? Just conjure up this this kind of a scenario. Theoretically, it is fiction. Wonder if in 2001, President Bush uh, and the Taliban met in some field of war, some place, probably in Afghanistan, some some military uh, possession outside of Kabul or something like that, and the two armies clashed, clashed as they did in the Civil War, as they did in the First World War, as Napoleon did, <laughs> as we did at Normandy, and as the Soviets did at Stalingrad and in Korea. What if they clashed in a conventional uh, theater of war between the Taliban and the American military? Okay? Just think of that. That war would be over in two hours. It'd be two, it'd be two hours, or maybe one hour or maybe half an hour, the Taliban would be finished instantly. And that war would be over. And then we would not have to spend 20 years trying to reconstruct the society, building nations. That is the differences between the two. And what does that mean in American history? Where does it come from? Basically, as Russell Wigley suggested in his opening remarks, as the country became wealthy and more powerful, it became more and more of an industrial power and more and more of a, a conventional military power. And I can think of several other uh, places in which to uh, address this, but I think the actual beginning of this and its duration throughout the 20th century began with the American Civil War. And I would like to quote to you some firsthand references uh, to what it, what, it, what it meant. What did the strategy of annihilation really mean to American military planners? And it began in the Civil War. And it, I want to quote just from one general at the beginning at least who wrote a memo to General uh, William T. Sherman as he was about to move into Georgia. <laughs> the letter writer was a famous American general in the Union Army named Henry Halleck. <laughs> and if you listen carefully, you'll understand what Russell Wigley meant when he says war of annihilation. Uh, this is Halleck writing to Sherman in 1864, quote, I am fully of opinion that the nature of your position, the character of the war, the conduct of the enemy, and especially of non-combatants and women, will justify you in gathering up all the forage and provisions which your army will require, both for a siege of Atlanta and for your supply in your march farther into the enemy country. 
Let the disloyal families of the country, Georgia, thus stripped, go to their husbands, fathers, and natural protectors in the rebel ranks. We have tried three years of conciliation and kindness without any rapacity. On the contrary, those thus treated have acted as spies and guerrillas in our rear and within our lines. We have fed this class of people long enough. Let them go with their husbands and fathers in the rebel ranks. And if they go, if they won't go, we'll send them to their friends and natural protectors. I would destroy every mill and factory within reach, which I did not want for my own reach or my own use. That is the essence of the American way of war. And that is exactly how we waged our combats, both in the First and Second World Wars. Uh, let me continue with this and just to reinforce it. In his letter to uh, General Sheridan, Philip Sheridan, an Irishman, was uh, in charge of American forces uh, in the Shenandoah Valley under U.S. Grant in 1864. This is the copy of a telegram that Grant sent to General Sherman uh, regarding how to deal with uh, his own Afghanistan in in uh, the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, 1864. I quote Grant, if you can spare a division of cavalry, send them through Loudoun County to destroy and carry off crops animals, slaves, and all men under 50 years of age capable of bearing arms. In this way, <coughs> you will get rid of many of Mosby's men. By the way, John Mosby was the Taliban of Virginia in 1863 and 64. He was a guerrilla agent who harassed Union lines and actually captured a Union general in Fairfax, Virginia. In this way, you will get rid of many of Mosby's men. Give the enemy no rest. Do all the damage to railroads and crops that you can. Carry off stock of all descriptions so as to prevent further planning. If the war is to last another year, we want the Shenandoah Valley to remain a barren waste. And just to conclude this section of uh, uh, the conversation, let me elaborate a little bit more on the Civil War. Uh, this is to reinforce the idea of what Wigley calls annihilation, the American way of war. Don't forget, the Second World War was ended on two days, August 3rd, excuse me, August 6th and August 9th, in about a few minutes with air power over two Japanese cities, which killed over 100,000 people in about two or three minutes. Okay, as an example, in the 19th century. Sherman writing to Grant regarding Georgia. Until we can repopulate Georgia, it is useless to occupy it. But the utter destruction of its roads, houses, and people will cripple their military resources. I can make the march and make Georgia howl. This is Grant, number two, to Phil Sheridan in the Shenandoah Valley. Again, another one of Grant's legacies to the American way of war. Quote, Shenandoah Valley should become a desert. All provisions and stock should be removed and the people notified 
to move out. Troops should eat out Virginia clear and clean as far as they go, so the crows flying over it for the balance of the season will have to carry their own provisions with them. And finally, Sheridan to Grant in reply to General Grant, the Shenandoah Valley from Winchester to Staunton will have little in it for man or beast. Okay? These are the ways in which America waged this war, basically against the South and then against the Germans and uh, and uh, the Japanese uh, in the first half of the of the 20th century. So within that perspective, it, it is clearly the case that both in Vietnam and in Afghanistan, the war conditions and the terrain and the geopolitical realities had very little to do with the traditional American ways of war. In other words, America was basically a giant uh, within a, a perimeter in which it could not even see nor locate its enemy. And when it tried to, uh, to, to define its mission as construction or building or democracy or something completely foreign to the military operational code, it, it did indeed uh, confine itself to what is called protracted warfare is, is also one of the words I've used. Protracted means indecisive uh with long periods of of time out uh, uh with periods of rest and recovery uh of uncertainty of confusion and so forth protracted war is not the decisive annihilation that america grew up with so with that in mind i would say that the fundamental reason that the tactical results were so poorly uh uh, enabled both in Vietnam and in the uh, in Afghanistan is that a great power like the United States has found it both cases impossible to adapt itself to the kind of war that both Vietnam and Afghanistan has presented, and I think this was actually even endorsed by the architect of the Vietnam War who was Robert McNamara, if anybody recalls his name, he was the defense secretary during the majority of the Vietnam War under both Kennedy and Johnson. And he wrote a book in 1995. He died, I think, in 2008. Don't forget, he was the architect of the American uh, combat in the entire uh, aspect of the Vietnam War. The, the main elements of it until 1968, until he was released by Richard Nixon. The 1995 book is entitled, and it really received very little attention, but it, it should have been uh, the Bible before we moved into Afghanistan. In retrospect, the tragedy and lessons of Vietnam. This is the former Secretary of State, and I can just quote his conclusion which is basically my conclusion uh, of this conversation. Quote, 
just as Washington misperceived Vietnam a generation ago, it remained in danger of making a similar mistake. Robert McNamara, 1995. And then finally, I want to quote Robert Gates, who was still alive and well and who was on television this morning. He was the Secretary of Defense, both for George W. Bush and for the first three years of Obama's uh, tenure. He said in the year, I think, uh, 2012, and I quote him as well, I believe we and the, the Afghans would have been better served had our military departed in 2002 and had thereafter relied on non-military instruments of national power. Robert Gates in about 2012. So in summary, Hannah and everybody, I believe that the, the tactical mistakes that the State Department and the DLD produced and the White House uh, over 20 years of warfare were basically the product and the result of fundamental historic, industrial, geopolitical realities of warfare. And as McNamara said in 1995, we should, even he had said, we should have learned the lessons, uh, but we had not. And I don't know if I'm able to explain why we haven't. That, that would be the, the most difficult questions. If it is true, if I, if I, as I've outlined, and as the secretaries of defense have outlined, and if the military understood, then why wasn't these lessons, why weren't these lessons applied throughout the Afghanistan uh, debacle? That is the question that hangs over us. Thank you for that um, very in-depth discussion and just kind of looking at, you know, strategic culture and, and, and the historical perspective of that as well. Um, just kind of switching gears and, and looking at, you know, consequences. Um, the repercussions of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan are important and there are potential consequences. Um, could you discuss what you believe will be the immediate major consequences for the U.S. going forward? The immediate consequences? Yes. Uh, okay. The immediate consequences uh, have been a great deal of uh, of uh, I'd say not quite fear, but a great deal of skepticism as to how the Americans will respond to what occurred in August. Uh, I would say the immediate response, and I'm talking about the media from both, I'm talking about the political culture, both political parties, uh, and uh, other so-called pundits, P-U-N-D-I-T-S, pundits who are public intellectuals, have had a tendency, in my, again, humble opinion, to exaggerate the uh, immediate implications uh, in terms of saying this is the final chapter of America's 
preeminence in the world. This is the beginnings of the Chinese uh, ascendancy to global power. This is the the final straw. America is going to have to retreat into isolationism. I think the immediate reaction has been uh, exaggerated. And I am not necessarily going to uh, blame the people who do this. Uh, I think it's their job. Uh, I, especially in the media, their job is to 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 use hyperphraseology to describe current events. It makes the currency far more important than perspective. <clears throat> but I'm more interested, frankly, in the larger term uh, implications. What would it mean over the long haul? Right now, for you know, uh, October 18th, 2021, outside of what I've just referred to as as mostly uh, uh, conversation, as mostly exaggerated conversation, the implications have been zero. Nothing has really happened. China has not taken over the world. The United States has not retreated anywhere and so forth. I mean, everybody's concerned about immigration on the Mexican border and about uh, 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 the, the uh, mandates for uh, uh, vaccines and so forth. You won't, you won't turn on TV and find people interested in, in Afghanistan like they were on August 17th. So what, is, what, is, what are the longer terms? Okay, let's take a, a longer perspective about this withdrawal. Yes, it was very nasty. It was hasty and it was ill-conceived. We should have done A, B, and C, and so forth. But we're out. I just heard this morning on the air that hundreds of Americans have just been released from Kabul. Kabul. Uh, they, they've been released from the country. I am more interested in what, will, what people will be talking about regarding Afghanistan in October 2022. What will they be talking about it uh, in, uh, in, in three years? Will they still be interested in what happened in August, 10 years from now? Can you close your eyes and even imagine that spectacle? In, 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 a, in a larger perspective, just to use uh, some historical chronology, <clears throat> there have been approximately 300 wars waged since the year 1900 on the globe. 300 including the First and the Second World War, but not including the Cold War. Most of these wars are unknown to any population today. 300 wars have been waged since 1900. Okay? Just in that perspective alone, Afghanistan is war number 301. How do you exaggerate that? Uh, One of the reasons for the American uh, sensitivity, and I think it's justified. I'm not. I'm not necessarily a critic. I'm. I'm trying to describe things. Is that the Americans have never had any major colonial past. We have not experienced uh, supervising foreign peoples, with with a few exceptions, mostly the Philippines, 
uh, in our history, and we've always been highly critical of colonial regimes, even our closest allies. If you take a look at the background in the history of Britain and France, it is conceivable that both empires throughout the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century occupied or colonized most of the countries that are currently in the General Assembly. It's been estimated that Great Britain itself invaded every country currently in the General Assembly except 22 of them. Certainly, if you put a list of the countries that were colonized by just two countries, Britain and France, you probably have a list that would exceed 100. 100. And they all had to get out of them in one way or the other. And every single time that they did, it caused either war or terrible uh, consequences. Just as one example, when Britain gave India its freedom, the subcontinent in 1947 to 48, there were approximately 2 million people that were killed in the transfer authority between Britain and Pakistan, going from Hindu to a Muslim country. Britain had to fight a long guerrilla war in Malaysia. The French had to fight a long guerrilla war before we did in Vietnam. They had to do the same in Algeria. The Dutch had to fight a long guerrilla war in Indonesia. The Spanish had to do the same throughout South America and Cuba and so forth. These other countries have had a great history of maybe 100 Afghanistans. We have had either none or very few, especially with the one exception of the Philippines. So we don't have the imperial background that Europe has had. And so it's a natural tendency to inflate the difficulties we've had in trying to govern one place remote from our shores uh, in the 21st century. It's understandable. And I think, therefore, even though it's understandable, it's inflated compared to the general history of world politics. I think the consequences of Afghanistan is still to be is still to be decided. And I use this analogy in some of my writings and so forth. Let's say that I have a a very severe cut on my arm and it's bleeding. And somebody says to me, hey, is that serious? What's the answer? I don't know. It depends on how much I scratch. We have within ourselves the capacity to either come out of the Afghanistan fiasco, a stronger and more coordinated and a more mature nation, or we have the capacity to come out of it more divided than currently and in retreat from world responsibility. That's what I mean on that. And it's still up in the air. The answer to how we're going to come out of Afghanistan is that nobody knows. I don't know, but I'll give you my private advice. I think given the state of the political culture since the end of the Cold War, I myself am very pessimistic. I do not think that the United States will use the Afghanistan experience 
in positive ways. And finally, just let me give one more historic reference. Great Britain in 1776 was the superpower of the world. Five years later, it lost half of the American continent in 1781. It lost the United States. It lost America. Great Britain went on to become the greatest naval power in world history, controlled the seven seas, and cooperated with America in the greatest wars in the, in the 20th century. Britain used the defeat of America, the defeat inside the United States, as, a, as an example of what not to do in the future and how to concentrate on naval power for supremacy on the seven seas. That's just one example. How we're going to recover from Vietnam, from, from, well, it, we did recover from Vietnam, by the way. And don't forget that we covered we recovered from Vietnam quite well, and a few years after the evacuation of Saigon in 1975, the Cold War was over. The Soviet Union was dead, and under Ronald Reagan and George Bush, America in 1991, when Gorbachev came into power, uh, the United States was universally acknowledged as the single superpower of the globe. 25 years later, or more, 30 years later, that that position is severely at stake, and it and I am frankly pessimistic about uh, its future tenure. Thank you. And so just kind of um, looking at the article that you wrote for the IWP website um, entitled Afghan Perspective, um, you seek to kind of assess the lasting consequences of Afghanistan, um, kind of like you similarly just did by examining um, historical events and basically making the point that time ultimately changes things. So could you summarize your article for the listeners um, and maybe discuss a few more historical events where you've seen similar media outcomes um, where time has played you know, a major factor in changing both sentiments and relationships? Oh, well, uh, I have alluded to that uh, in, my, in the previous remarks. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the uh, tactical situation in South Asia uh, by itself is not uh, even even geopolitically just just ignoring the reaction so far in the media and so forth. Geopolitically cannot have a major uh, implication if it is not permitted. Uh, uh, one of the questions I think that you had on your uh, on your questionnaire that you sent me uh, was how do we deal with this in the future? Uh, I would say that uh, the best way to deal with it is to uh, learn the lesson from it and rather than occupy and contain future problems in, in, in the world that will certainly erupt is to uh, try to contain them uh, through diplomacy at first. And I use the word contain appropriately, uh, which means uh, drawing lines and and uh, avoiding uh, the kind of involvement that we had both in Vietnam and Afghanistan, and uh, elevating the idea of America as a unique country in terms of its political culture. 
I think the idea of America as a military superpower is a misnomer. Uh, I, I believe that the best element of America's uh, virtue uh, lies in its ideas uh, and in the ideas of liberty and uh, political uh, democracy and other elements that were uh, basically discovered by the by, in, in 1776 have been overshadowed by the idea of being a military superpower. I think that uh, I, I know your your question was uh, devoted to history, but I have already gone into uh, history quite a bit, and I think that uh, I would like to encourage uh, future leaders of the United States to remember what our basic virtue is. And the basic virtue is is from the intellect and from the political culture. I think that is the best uh, uh, image in which to create uh, a, any kind of a future world order. And uh, I think if we go back historically uh, to the period that immediately uh, followed the Second World War, and we followed some of the uh, 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 episodes that created the world order that we still live in or are still hanging on to, we would find the best histor historical example of how America should react uh, in a global sense. I'm referring to the Berlin airlift. I'm referring to the Marshall Plan. Uh, one was a quasi-military, an Air Force uh, rescue of 2 million people, and it lasted for over a year. The other was an economic stabilization of the entire area of Western Europe, including Britain, which was basically a non... Both of these were basically non-military. Uh, the creation of NATO was a military alliance, but it was also basically a political deterrent. Uh, uh, and it has lasted uh, the test of time, and it's actually doubled and tripled, nearly tripled in its membership. I think that in the future, NATO and other vehicles like that should be <clears throat> either transformed into political alliances or some kind of uh, a, a global vehicle that would be uh, dominated by an exclusively uh, controlled by English speak, uh, by uh, democratic countries, not only English speaking, but from Asia as well, would be the best response to the uh, Afghanistan uh, debacle. And this idea of creating kind of a, a block of liberal and democratic nations is as old as history. It was actually the, the main point in Churchill's famous address uh, so-called the Iron, Iron Curtain speech of uh, 1946. I think if we use our our basic strengths, and you know, uh, they basically are not military, they're not strategic, they're intellectual, they're political culture, and we advance that across the board. I think we would be able to respond to the to the uh, to the uh, Afghanistan. Uh, debacle. I think that it, 
No, this may be called Wilsonianism. It does go back. It really, it really does go back to the actual beginnings of the country, to the nature of the, uh, <laughs> the, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, and the Federalist Papers, and so forth. I think we have to remember that that is our basic heritage. With all due respect, it is not General Grant. It is not Hiroshima. Our basic heritage is Washington, Jefferson, and them. And I think that's where we have to uh, – uh, that's a bit of an editorial, I, I admit, but I think that's that's the only way in which the future uh, holds promise. And I think a superpower should be addressed in intellectual and cultural and political terms, not in military and not with occupation. I, I, there are two – aspects of of foreign policy uh, in its uh, reach. One is intervention. The other is occupation. Intervention, I heartily endorse. Occupation, I do not. Thank you. Um, and my last question here for you today is, um, you know, as a, a, a teacher at the Institute, you know, um, teaching future leaders, uh, what would your, you know, biggest piece of advice be to maybe students at the Institute or other um, graduate institutions, um, your biggest piece of advice in avoiding, you know, a future um, Vietnam or a future, you know, Afghanistan um, for future leaders, what would be your biggest piece of advice? Well, the biggest piece of advice would, would be what I've just quoted regarding Mar Robert McNamara, who uh, wrote in his book in 1995, we should finally learn the lessons of of what his what he was referring to in terms of Vietnam and what we now know is both Vietnam and Afghanistan. That is the strategic advice, uh, and I don't mean a return to make America great again or a return to 1920 or 1930 isolationism. I mean principled behavior uh, based upon the values of the Western tradition, which goes back to ancient Greece and goes back to uh, Roman law. It goes back to uh, Judeo-Christian theological designs. It goes back to John Locke, who was the founder of our uh, Declaration of Independence. In fact, uh, it was basically he who was the uh, hidden ghostwriter of the Declaration of Independence, although he lived 100 years before. It's the return to ideas and the attraction of ideas and the promotion of ideas. Look at how this Cold War ended in the 1980s. Not a shot was fired, even though both sides, the Soviet Union and the United States of America, had about 95 to 100,000 nuclear delivery systems. What toppled the Soviet Empire? One of the most totalitarian regimes in world history. It was ideas. It was uh, political activity. Uh, it was uh, enrolling allies such as Pope John Paul II and other in Poland and Lech Walesa and, and others like that. Uh, I'm reminded of, and I can close with this, uh, I'm reminded of, of a, uh, a speech that was given uh, by Lech Walesa. Lech Walesa was the founder and the spirit of 
anti-Soviet behavior in Poland in the 18, excuse me, 1980s and 90s. And he later became, he later became uh, the president of Poland. He basically symbolized resistance to the Red Army in Poland. Okay. And about 15 years ago, like it was 2005, he came to the school. He came to IWP. I think he was uh, brought in here by our Polish native and expert, Dr. Hodakiewicz, who knew the Pope, I think, uh, fairly well. And he came to IWP. Uh, Lech Walesa did. Uh, I mean, I mean, Marek knew uh, Lech Walesa. Uh, well, not the Pope, I'm sorry. And Luesa came and he addressed a audience of about 200 people, if you can squeeze that many in. And uh, he gave a speech in Polish that was uh, translated by Dr. Hodakiewicz. And uh, I understand, understood quite a bit of it, but uh, it was based upon his activity uh, as a uh, the labor union uh, uh, leader against the uh, uh, occupation of Poland by the Soviet Union. And he, he was asked one question at the end of it. And this is what I want to conclude with. Somebody asked him, oh, Mr. Walesa, how would you uh, compare the contributions that you and your union, which was called Solidarity, had about the breakup of the Soviet Union. This was about 2006. And he said this, if I recall, and I was there right up front. He said, I spent uh, most of my adult life, maybe 40 years, rounding up workers to oppose the Soviet presence and the Red Army throughout my country, Poland. 20 years, most, both myself and my followers went to jail periodically. Our families were harassed. We were uh, bombarded by the, by the Polish government and by the, Red, uh, the Soviet officials. At the end of the 25 year period, though, therefore right before the, the Soviet Union collapse or right around 1985, 89 or something like that, I had approximately 200 followers across the country. In 1980, the former Cardinal of Warsaw, Pope John the uh, uh, 22nd, I think, Pope John, who was a former Polish Cardinal, and he was a Pope for about a year, came back to Warsaw, and he gave one speech for about an hour in the center of Warsaw. And he went into some detail, the speech emphasized ethical values, it emphasized political liberty, it emphasized humanity, and it didn't make a single reference to the Polish situation and to the Red Army. It was a very uplifting and elevating speech of political values. And he concluded his response to the question by this. He said, the next day, <coughs> I had 20,000 followers after one speech by the Pope. That's political rhetoric and it's imagery, but that's the kind of uh, emphasis that I think uh, IWP stands for, and which I think uh, would be uh, the way in which the United States foreign policy 
should be directed and not by debacles such as occurred in 1975 and last August. We should emphasize our our values. And I'm sorry to say, in conclusion, I don't think those values are front and center in the current social climate. And that's why my pessimism dominates. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Tierney, for joining the IW podcast and um, discussing the important topic of Afghanistan, as well as touching upon your article um, on the IWP website entitled Afghanistan in Perspective. Um, we greatly appreciate your time, and it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Hannah.